Okay, I won't move around. I'll, I'll sit very still like a Buddha. In the corner, boy. In the corner. <laughs> Hi and welcome to episode 45 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Tonight on the show, I'm joined by Len. Hello, Len. Good evening, everybody. And we're joined by Mike Hayser. Hello, Mike. Hey, how's it? Tonight, the idea is to take a walk down Angular 2 Road and see what's coming down the pipe. And uh, Mike, I understand you've been doing a lot of work um, understanding what Angular 2 is and what it means for everybody. So it's going to be insightful to, to hear what you've got to share with us. But before we get to Angular... Let's learn about the man behind the mic tonight. So tell us a bit about who you are, what you do. Hi, I'm a specialist web dev working at a company called BBD. I've been hacking on the web for a while. I've basically been building websites badly since GeoCities was a thing. I have uh, worked in a, a whole bunch of languages, some, a lot of static languages, C Sharp, Java, a little bit of Ruby. Um, but I have a long-lived love affair with JavaScript. So I end up doing the vast majority of my work in JavaScript. I've built production systems in most of the, the de facto big frameworks. So Angular, Backbone, Knockout, and bad old jQuery. And yeah, my day-to-day -day job is building Angular apps. Nice. I think my first website I ever created was uploaded to GeoCities. So you just took me far back now. Area 51, baby. <laughs> and I wonder <laughs> how many people would still remember GeoCities and Tripod and I can't even remember the other ones now, <laughs> but the good old days. Exactly. Those, re those really were single page websites. Eh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Before we realized that iframes were a bad idea. Yes. And table borders and under construction gifts. Oh yeah. How many under construction, under construction websites have there been in the world? Eh? Probably more than websites. <laughs> I have, that's my guess. But um. Yeah, back to the more 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 present, <laughs> away from those dark ages of pre-CSS world and, and broken JavaScript. Um, Mike, tell us a little bit about, about Angular 2. Um, I'm curious, though, this has been a, a long time coming. Um, I'm not the, the most knowledgeable person on Angular, so I'll be the one asking the dumb questions tonight. But I'm curious. It seems to be there's momentum building around this thing. Um, it's been coming for a while. I'm not hearing a lot of bad press about it, um, except there was at one stage the upgrade story to Angular 2, and that seems to have been, I guess, either sorted or accepted. Um, but I jump all over the place. Give us the, the whirlwind tour. What's, what's up? What, what are we looking forward to? Okay, well, well, Angular 2, you're right, has been a long time coming. I think um, the initial release of Angular 1 made a disproportionate splash um, to what the, the team that that wrote the framework thought that it would. It became very popular very quickly because it's very easy to get up and running with a, a relatively full-fledged solution um, and relatively easy for people to grok. Um, but unfortunately, as with anything that you design and grow organically over a, a short period of time, there are some fundamental problems that you build into it because we never get things right initially. So a big part of Angular was redressing those problems and moving the framework forward in a, in a much more scalable way. Um, so, so essentially, a, a big part of it is moving away from the, the, the dependency injection model that they had, the, the 
scope digesting that they had, which is basically how they propagate changes to the front end, to move away from two-way data binding in its entirety, um, and then to add a whole bunch of new features, including new tooling support, new language features, and um, lots of framework features. Because okay, so you said moving away from two-way data binding, um, I, I had a bit of a bear with Angular 1, and the two-way data binding was a very interesting part of the framework. So they've decided to move away from that, just have one-way data binding now? Or? Well, so the, the problem is that two-way data binding is, is one of those very seductive headline features that makes it easy to start working with something, but it's actually the poison that ends up killing an application because it becomes very, very difficult to control the flow of data. If you can't control the flow of data, you end up having um, too many things subscribing to events, if that makes sense. You're notifying too many things. And then that result is that on a, any system of significant complexity or significantly large data sets, it just grinds to a halt. Now, the fundamental problem behind Angular 1 is that everything by default out of the box is two-way data binding. Um, and that that's an issue. So rather than removing two-way data binding in its entirety, they just moved away from the default syntax being two-way data bound so that people could not get themselves into trouble as easily. Okay, so it's still there, but by default you don't get it and they'd like you not to do, do that? Exactly, so that if you do use two-way data, data binding, you're making the decision yourself. Okay, cool. And what else is, what else is new? So that's only part of it. Um, the, the other aspect, why the two-way data binding ended up becoming a major issue was because of the isolation of the the scope of the the bits and pieces of the application, the individual controllers that you would be working with. Um, they were poorly isolated, to be honest. So it became very, very easy to climb all the way up the, the tree and cause the entire site to have to re-render, essentially. Okay, great. So it's very easy to destroy the DOM by accident and just bring your application down to uh, a halt. Exactly. Now, I must say, this seems the general trend is for the two-way data binding now to disappear. And I like how you said it's just like the flashy headline. I know the Ember community is also pushing really, really hard for people to stop doing that and just do data down and events up. So it becomes easier to manage everything. I guess it's a very React-inspired way of doing things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that that exactly is it, and that's the direction that the Angular community has gone. So I, I suppose from one cynical perspective, you could say yes, they're just following that trend. Um, but I would believe that they've they've learned from other people's experience. They're embracing the open source model, and they're saying, well, this works better than what we have, so let's follow it. Just in terms of that, I mean, with with React, you've got this. Um, what do they call it the shadow DOM? Is Angular also going to work with that similar kind of idea? Um, yes, they do have a lot of work that they've done with the shadow DOM, but I don't think it's completely ready for prime time. It's one of those things that they may not be out of the box support for, if that makes sense. Um, I'm still a bit uncertain in that. Okay, cool. All right, and then I, I believe there's a big move towards TypeScript as the sort of way to go with Angular 2. Is that right? Well... So, so herein lies the problem. When they initially made the announcement of Angular 2 back in 2014, they, they made a big deal of moving to a, a superset of TypeScript that they had called ATScript. That's and that right, upset yeah. a lot of people because old fogies like myself like, um, like JavaScript. We've, <laughs> we've come to, to use it a lot and appreciate its idiosyncrasies. Um, 
so so they found themselves with a very big problem they believed strongly in the typescript movement or having um essentially better tooling around their language so so maybe if, if i might unroll a little bit and talk about typescript as itself why typescript arrived so Microsoft themselves were under a lot of pressure to build better and better and better JavaScript tooling. And at the end of the day, a lot of their tooling hinges off of the compiler step. You know, most of the, the magic that happens in C Sharp happens inside the C Sharp compiler and just gets bubbled out from there. Um, so they felt that they needed to, to do something out of that. And the end result ended up being TypeScript, uh, a compiled version of JavaScript. Now, uh, they they obviously immediately started by saying, "Cool, well we'll take um, we'll take ECMA script six, and we'll make sure that we're compliant with that. But we're going to add a whole bunch of the stuff that we really really believe in, and we feel developers want to have a seamless experience coming from conventional static languages like C sharp and Java. So they want types, they want annotations, and they want contracts. Um, so for for better for worse, that's how that was born. Now." When you're developing a framework, something that somebody else is going to use, designing by contracts and having that 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 very explorable type model makes a lot of sense. Um, and it makes sense as to why the Angular team themselves and any tool set provider would want to write their framework in something like TypeScript. Um, the initial press, however, made it sound like that was that was the the, the way and the truth of it. Subsequently, they have done a lot of work. Angular 2 is not just a TypeScript language framework. You can write it in, in vanilla ECMA script 6, as well as vanilla ES5, which is basically JavaScript today. Uh, it just, the, the idioms don't hold as well, if that makes sense. You have to do a kind of, if you're, if you're just in plain JavaScript, you have to do a bit of extra work to, to get everything in order. Simply put, I think the biggest um, point of contention between the two is the use of annotations or decorators. Now, the decorator pattern is being under investigation, as far as I understand, for ES 2017 specification. So we might get decorators in standard JavaScript one day, but for the moment, it's still it's still under question. What's a, what's a decorator? It's basically that at annotation that you put on top of a class that gives it a whole bunch of metadata. So... It's one of the nice things about um, Angular 2 is they've taken all of that config stuff out of your, your code itself. Your code is just a plain old JavaScript or TypeScript object and push that into an annotation that decorates that code. I believe they're called attributes in C Sharp and annotations in Java. Oh, okay. So not, not very much to do with the decorator pattern from the Gang of Four. No. Okay, cool. It, it helps old people like myself to understand where these things fit in the world. <laughs> Absolutely agreed. Okay, cool. Um, so I'm not sure. So, so the thing is that a lot of the TypeScript trend was around the perceived tooling problem. And I say perceived problem, I myself and a lot of the other community um, don't, don't feel is an issue. I think the tooling is improving for vanilla JavaScript. But then having said that, some of the benefits in being able to have wider access to resources. So people that are used to working in, in conventional static languages, being able to easily make the transition to work on the front end, it's a major plus and it increases the, the amount of people we have available. Um, and then 
fundamentally, there's no difference between what TypeScript is doing from a Ford's compatibility perspective than what Babel is doing in transpiling from ES6 to ES5. You're basically just future-proofing your JavaScript code, which is a good thing. And I understand TypeScript is, you know, as a rule, like completely opt-in. You can take any JavaScript file and just rename it to a .ts and it will run through the, the TypeScript compiler without issue. Basically, yeah. So you, you can, if you're if you're passive-aggressive like me, just write normal JavaScript code in the middle of a big TypeScript project. You may just not be very popular. Yeah, no, I can imagine. But uh, I was just thinking on a more complex project, if you start running it through the TypeScript compiler, you can start getting that benefit of the type inference. And if you make a little annotation here and there, maybe the, controller, uh, the tooling can come and really help you out. No, definitely. I must say, I haven't written TypeScript yet, but I've... Like it's been on the radar for quite some time. I remember Jared Hemmer at um, JSONSA a few years ago was already making jokes with, um, like with me saying like, you know, once a project has over 10,000 lines of JavaScript, you need to go to TypeScript. And the project I was working on at the time was like 9,800 lines. So I had a few, few hundred in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll rip something up my picks, but I'll, I'll add it uh, to the show notes. It's a great JavaScript Jabber episode uh, from April where they speak to one of the creators of TypeScript. And it's actually quite fascinating to hear his reasoning about um, what they did, the tooling, the compiler, the origin story, where they're going with it. And it really made me feel a lot more comfortable with the idea of TypeScript. Awesome. That sounds lovely. Yeah. And then uh, almost in the irony, the Ember community has embraced the vanilla ES6 stuff um, or ES 2015 and 16 up yet their new Glimmer rendering engine um, is being written in TypeScript because they, they just reckon it's the better way to, to get that like low-level control they need. And it's apparently a hell of a lot faster than if they rolled it by hand. It's The compilers help them out a lot. So it's, it's curious. I think it's well worth checking out if you've got the time to spare. Of course. So other than TypeScript and the TypeScript compiler, actually, is TypeScript um, optional? Is it just a default or is it the only option? Can you use vanilla JavaScript um, or any other languages like Transpile? Apps, well, I don't know of any other languages, but you can use vanilla JavaScript. So they, the the API does support ES5 as it stands, so normal JavaScript today. Um, and they do have a very, very nice syntax for uh, a fluent API for all of the configuration stuff using ES6, which is my preferred view. but Honestly, at the moment, as it stands, the happy path is TypeScript. If you if you want to use something other than TypeScript, you'd be swimming against the tide at the moment. Okay, so then, other than TypeScript, what other exciting things are there that we should be looking forward to in Angular 2? The performance is amazing. I mean, we've already discussed that. So the the unidirectional data flow that they've they've copied from frameworks like Ember and um, React or Flux model stuff. Um, it, it, it's really, really good. They've also, um, they've reduced the footprint of the initial, initial page, uh, sorry, the, the initial um, library down from Angular 1's library of 56K to 45K, which is impressive. I mean, that's no mean feat for, for adding so much additional work. Um, and then finally, they've got some headline features that are, are really phenomenal, which is the introduction of isomorphic JavaScript. So essentially, I don't know if you want me to go there yet, but essentially oh, what they've done is <laughs> they've divorced um, 
the Angular rendering engine from the browser itself. It's something they've been under a lot of pressure to do from frameworks like Ionic and the, the frameworks that run inside mobile devices. And what that's basically let them do is do server-side rendering of Angular controls and components and push them down onto the browser. So on the server-side, would you render it out with Node? Then. Uh, well, essentially, what will happen is it will generate, um, it won't render out with Node, it'll generate a whole bunch of partials. So the, the, the framework itself is called, well, the sub-framework is called Angular Universal. So at build time, they genera generate a bunch of partials that represent your page, literally HTML pages, that you'll then download. Um, giving you an immediate zero footprint to, to load up your site. And then it would start recording the interactions with the page while the actual site itself bootstraps. So it starts downloading the actual JavaScript it needs and it starts up the Angular framework and wires up all of your routing. And then as the, the bootstrapping completes, it'll replay those events, um, providing you with a basic instantaneous experience, allegedly. I haven't used it myself yet, but this is what the, the, the side of the tin says. It's a great uh, promise for bandwidth constraint users and uh, search engines alike, or any kind of bot, I guess. Ab absolutely. And um, Google research indicates that as much as a 200 millisecond difference in initial page load has a, a fundamental difference in how people interact with your site and how much traction they have on that initial visit of your site. Yeah, and if you're shipping the one meg of JavaScript and they have to wait over a crappy 3G, that's not going to fly. Exactly right. Um, but then on top of that, so this was just the first part, and it's obviously as a web guy, this excites me a lot, um, having had to deal with those initial page loads. The, the other aspect of it is that they're, they're now able to work with other frameworks like NativeScript, and they can essentially provide um, the entire Angular framework on a native mobile device using native rendering rather than HTML. Wow, so they can compete heads-on with React Native for Mindshare. Well, essentially, yep. What's this native script? So the, the the server is going to generate what? Well, native script isn't it, it isn't generated from the server, but it's basically writing JavaScript that lets you interface on a low level with the device as if it was running natively. Um, I, I don't know very much about it. I'm not a mobile guy, but I, I do believe that it's it's something that there's been a hell of a lot of demand for. Okay, cool. Yeah, I also don't know a lot about the native script guys, but it's a. I think it's a. I don't know if it's open source, but yeah, I think it is open source, at least parts of it. And then the, the huge company behind it to help developers support and some proprietary tools that make it better, um, some weird XML language that defines your interfaces that just work on iOS and Android, and they compile it all down and make it run fast. And it might be one of those panaceas or unicorns. I don't know. We'll have to find somebody on the show who knows about it to come and chat to us about native script. Awesome. I'll listen to that one. Um, and then otherwise they've, they've developed a whole bunch of tooling because just um, the framework itself itself is really, really solid, but you need a, a larger ecosystem around it for it to be usable. And essentially they've, they've worked very well with partner teams, like the teams that, the team that worked on a, a tool that was originally called Angular Batterangle and then just Wrangle um, for basically Angular 1 debugger visualization and scope visualization. That was, that was the Chrome app plugin. The Chrome plugin, yes, that's right. They've basically written a new Chrome plugin called Augury 
which is amazing and it gives you full visualization of your your digest hierarchy basically how every component in your application is interacting with every other component and what data is being referenced where it's it's really really good maybe that's a good place to to just interrupt you there so what, what i quite liked about angular one was this uh kind of very clean separation of you know the model what do they call it model view model or like that where the models themselves were largely just JavaScript objects. And I, I find that quite refreshing because I could just start by building my visual components and I could just, you know, to begin with, just put some JavaScript data into them. I didn't have to do a whole lot of data modeling to just get a visual component going. Is Angular 2 changing that at all? Well, on that point, it's actually very interesting that you bring it up because there's some there's some good news and some bad news about that. Because one of the so so Angular is stuck to a potentially strained and tired metaphor of model view controller, and it's not quite a model view controller pattern. Um, it, as you say, it's much more model view view model. Um, but that also had its problems. So they've moved away from that because the Google as a whole and the Angular team specifically believes in the, the, the modern approach to web components. So essentially they've, they've restructured everything. So the fundamental cornerstone that you're going to build your application out of or the, the building blocks are components. Um, so you'll build a component that functionally will be exactly the same as how you used to build a controller with a view, except you'll have a partial and then the, the component itself with one or with a couple very clear distinctions. So firstly, the component will have a complete isolated scope, whereas the controller scope used to be inherited from the root scope or from whatever it was contained within, the component scope would be completely isolated and give you clear input and output points that allow you to, to specify how that accepts interactions with it and how it interacts outside of it. Now, now by scope in Angular, you mean the kind of parameters that come into the component? Essentially, yes. Well, the, the scope is is the, the closely bound state of the component, but what what I'm talking about as the input and output of the, the component is, is things that we would have fetched manually from from the the root scope potentially or from other directives where you'll then have one control looking for a piece of data on another control if that makes sense oh okay and can you there's a way in angular to tell the components which piece of scope to use well you see that's exactly it so from a design perspective they've given you the api to be able to specify those interactions rather than than violating open close principle and understanding how different the, the private state of different components to be able to communicate between them so the reason why i mention this is because while angular one was very much that kick the tires get it up and running and go framework you people would get themselves into trouble really quickly as soon as the application scaled with any kind of complexity um, so the Angular 2 team has tried to redress this and redesign how you would write your application in terms of these components so that you get yourself into trouble a lot less. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, sure. So um, just to recap, the, your, your, your app's going to have something at the root scope, which is probably fetched by some sort of RPC call um, that then gets dished out to the various like visual components within a hierarchy that need those pieces of data exactly and and how does that differ say from something like redux 
Is it is it a similar pattern, or is you know is, is Redux compatible? Are you familiar with Redux at all? Absolutely. Um, so I'd actually think you'd find that there would, while you could apply a flux model like Redux to Angular One, there were points specifically that two-way data binding that ended up breaking it. Um, with Angular 2, you can be a lot more explicit and a lot more explicitly follow a Redux model and flow state throughout your application. It's a lot cleaner. So it's much better designed for the individual. Okay, so you can go and change something at the, the root scope and have all the relevant components sort of automatically update? And that's exactly right. But because of the design of it, you'll never have one component that inadvertently results in updating all of the other components if that makes sense a current pitfall of angular one yeah yeah okay that makes sense yeah those isolate scopes and things in angular one are very confusing yeah absolutely and then there's there's other niceties that they've added so firstly those two those two touch points on the api are really important but also as you start designing bigger and more complex applications and you try and reuse code you build what in angular one are called directives where they're commonly reused components and then you speak between the directives within your your controller potentially now the problem with it is is that when you reuse them there's no clear there's no clear way of saying which directives a single controller would be using for example which components they're using um, and as a part of the redesign with angular 2 they forced you to become a lot more precise you have to declare which directives are going to be used within the scope of a component just so that it, it it's a bit more manageable and that's a very good thing is those the components are more standalone now essentially yeah Okay, well that's that's really healthy. And that's the view, right? Because the idea is that a component should be standalone. If it needs data, it should it should tell the rest of the application what data it needs, um, and it should just be reusable throughout your application. Okay, that's cool. So now, when you say tell the rest of the application what data it needs, is there a way in Angular two to sort of specify a query, or or how does that work? Um, so not quite. It's basically initialization data, if that makes sense. Um, but but obviously you you can you can plug into anything and and yeah you know, expose the conventional services and communicate via services with yourself if you wanted to. Good. Uh, so Angular doesn't come with that as a layer. You'd you'd need to put something in there. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. That makes sense to me. What can you tell us about the Angular CLI? I'm quite curious about that because it's my understanding they borrowed a few things from Ember. To make that happen, yes, uh, I believe so. I, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit uncertain about the the decision to create their own CLI, CLI client. I think it's because they want to be that, in a certain ways, they want to be that one-stop shop framework where everything is self-contained. Um, very much an old-school Microsoft sort of approach. The part that worries me about it is that there's a hell of a lot of overlap with existing tools such as Grunt and Gulp for doing your your build orchestration and running and task running and scaffolders like Yeoman. Um, and, and I just, I worry that it may not be necessary. But having said that, if they do a better job of it than those specifically for Angular itself, it becomes a no-brainer. So I think it's one of those things that the quality of the implementation is going to dictate whether it's going to be successful. No, I have to agree with you on that one. I think the at least the Ember folks with the Ember CLI nailed it down nicely. They they brought everything together that you needed, 
but there was a time when it was also touch and go. It's like, why are you guys building your own thing? But in time, it's shown that at least for them, it's worked out really, really well. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is, and this is kind of naive to say, I'm not one of those those library authors, but I'm sure people could update their grant plugins, for instance, um, to become, you know, like the actual core functionality, and then that can plug into Grunt as a separate plugin, you know, as opposed to this thing that's completely tied to Grunt. And I think there's so many different runners out there other than the big ones that we know about or other systems to hook in. So even the normal TypeScript compiler, if you want to extend that for some reason, you you know, you'll need to plug in there. Or if you're doing Babel or you're doing Webpack or what, I don't even know how many other ones are out there now. So I guess if you want to compete as a library author, you need to make sure that you can plug into nearly anything and then let the community fill the gaps for you, making it easier for somebody to make an excuse to build something like Angular CLI. Absolutely. I think that's completely reasonable. You're right. Um, and the one thing about the Angular team is that they have they have very much tried to interface with the community, with the big projects out there, to make sure that their stuff is plays nicely with others, you know, in the playground. Yes, I know with the TypeScript, it's in that Cheryl link to that, that JavaScript Java. There was something that, that the, um, the TypeScript team raised their hands and said, guys, you don't need to create your, what was it called? Uh, Angular script or a script or, or whatever, and said they'll just roll the one feature that they needed back into TypeScript um, and let them just build that out and focus on the framework, which was quite a good move to see everybody working together like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's fantastic. And I'm, and I mean, on that point, um, just to, again, to roll back conversation a bit, because Len mentioned um, a React Native earlier. And one of the things that the Angular 2 team has been working with the React Native team to be able to use React Native as the renderer and then use the rest of the, the Angular framework behind that. Similarly, they've also been working with the Meteor team in very much the same way because Meteor has their, their approach to isomorphic data, or sorry, isomorphic JavaScript and that, that seamless usage of data, persistence over the wire, um, is just amazing, but they're things that Angular does very, very well. And I think that speaks at what you're saying. I mean, that's an interesting point. What, In what way does Angular 2 differ from React? Like, why why would you use, you know, like just exactly what you were saying there? It's just... Well, that's a very, very important point, actually, because React doesn't try and sell itself as being a fully-fledged framework. It does, It basically does one thing really, really well, and that's the UI rendering component. For the rest of it, um, you're largely up to yourself to to design, where, which is why Flux is a, a pattern. It's not something that's baked into the React framework. Angular, however, takes a very different approach, which says, well, you need you need a lot more of a safety net. You need a lot more of a framework within which to, to play in. Right. Do, you, do you think that's because Google's building it? That's difficult to say, but I do think that there is a need for that. There's a lot of developers, specifically working in industry, um, that are going to work in a, a corporate environment or an enterprise environment that want to want to have the one thing that they use rather than have to cobble together their own framework. Yeah, is that what they mean by platform, not a framework, right? Well, exactly. I think I think that's it. If you want to swap out any individual component of um, 
of Angular for something that you believe is better, like React, or if you have a different router that you want to use, or if you want to use Meteor's um, uh, data model or data approach, their, their live data, sorry, I think that's what it's called. Um, you can. That's very interesting. So you can plug in the various pieces as you need and still sort of largely remain in an Angular 2 application. And and that's exactly it. But again, out of the box, the the experience is very consistent. You can just work in an Angular way without needing to do that if you're not confident. Yes. Now, it's very important for learning the tool to have that consistent experience first. And then, you know, once you start driving, eventually you can start changing the oil, spark plugs, fan belts, whatever the analogy you need. Yeah, that's great, yeah. <laughs> but it's also dangerous. I mean, I remember the, the days of, of um, Backbone, how we all burned ourselves needing to build up all this stuff around everything. So it's sometimes nice to have that harness. Ab absolutely, and I think, I think that's one of those things. You know, personally, I, I'm one of those guys that, that leans towards the build your own framework. But it becomes very difficult because you have to work within a team. You need to bring people on board. You need to bring people with you. Um, and that's one of the things where Angular is really, really strong because it's easy for them to to get on board and get stuck in. So I'm curious, what do we know about the upgrade story at this stage of the match? I mean, it sounds like a completely different beast. And initially, I was under the impression a straight upgrade would not be possible. But I think that's changed recent in recent months. Absolutely. And that's a very, very valid point. Um, initially, the Angular team made a hell of a lot of waves in 2014 by saying that there would be no upgrade path from Angular 1 to Angular 2. Now, that's the kind of thing that if you've got a company that's got a heavy investment in Angular 1, it would make them very, very nervous. Um, and it did. So they, they went back, they sharpened their pencils, and they took a long, hard look at it. And they've come up with a whole bunch of approaches. So firstly, some of their, their, their structural um, changes like the move away from model view controller into a component model have already been pushed into Angular 1. So as of Angular 1.5, you can start writing in component metaphor rather than model view controller, which is the one side of it that's very, very good. But then the other aspect is still like you, you're going to carry on and then at some point in time need to hard switch across to Angular 2, or that's the perception. So they worked on a project called NG Upgrade, which essentially lets you load up your entire Angular application as a subset, your Angular 1 application as a subset of Angular 2 and let you inject your Angular 1 dependencies into the new Angular 2 components, which I think in a large sense, it doesn't completely take the, the upgrade path away, but it does make it a lot easier. And do you think there'll be tools to help um, rewrite your code? I mean, like pass out the ASD and convert it to the newer, newer version? I mean, I know it's not a silver bullet, but at least, you know, it can get you a long way there. Yeah, I think um, I, there might be tools eventually. I, th I think we might start seeing stuff like that come out. Um, that'll get you 80% of the way there after we, we get closer to 1.0. I think at the moment, people are just waiting for the framework to be finalized, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And I must say, it's, it's quite neat that they give you this component metaphor in 1.5 already to kind of get ready for the future, to start changing your code. As somebody that's working day-to-day -day on a production Angular 1.x application, that's amazing that they already start trying to take that architectural vision of the future and give you the tools now. And it, it's, it's really, really well thought through and very consistent by the Angular team. I saw that the Ember community tends to have done that 
you know goes through those phases as well with the major upgrades they either figure out a way to backboard something as a add-on or they start educating people on a new thing and the same when they started going to the components and breaking down the the two-way data binding they were like this is the future get ready for it now it will keep on working for youngs but come ember i think ember three you know it will be ripped out and then we've given you a whole ember two series to update your stuff to this this new way it's fantastic you know because you can't always just stop dead an upgrade if we've got jobs that we need to deliver if we've got stakeholders to keep happy and they don't understand what a flashy new angular 2 means most of the time yeah you're right so, why, why is it taking so long well <laughs> just to throw the curveball in there i mean the you, you, ken 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 likes to bring up ember and i mean ember guys are like maniacs man releasing every few months like some whole package of stuff this has been going on since 2014 hasn't it well Yes, you're absolutely right. I've got a I've got a fantastic link that I'll I'll send as a part of the pics if that's okay, which is a very comical explanation of the the Angular two release path. Um, and basically, every single time they've spoken about Angular two for the last two years, they've added more features onto their scope, and they've decided that they wanted to rebuild more. You know, and the stuff that we're talking about, Angular Universal, so being completely decoupled from the browser, the um, the command line interface, the the being able to interact with native those are all things that have been added over the last year um and i think finally somebody has put down their foot and said cool we now have our feature set we can now develop more after angular 2 maybe but not not before um so i think they they got caught up by a little bit of indecision by just wanting to make the thing more and more awesome so what is the saying it's it's highly likely it'll be shipped this year well, that's that's my opinion personally. Because if we take a look at the, because that's the, that's the immediate question that I invariably get asked when I talk about Angular two yeah. is yes, but when. Um, and if we take a look at the cadence, and specifically the cadence so far this year, right. it was in January, beginning in January, that they went into beta one, and then they had seven betas before in May they went to release candidate one. So they've clearly put down the the foot on the accelerator and are, are trying to push really really hard. Um, I think there'll probably be a similar cadence of releases over the next five or six months. But my gut feel personally is that we're going to see Angular 2 this year. They need to get it out the door. Okay, so now should people like start building with it or should they wait? I think that's the key question, right? Well, I suppose the first thing is that if people... Are you asking if they should start a new Angular application or whether they should upgrade already well I got, let's say i got a new app is angular 2 like something i should consider for that new app um it it's tricky at the moment i would say yes um but then i am the early adopter type i definitely think there's enough value there and there's enough solidity that between rc1 and final release the core of the application won't have changed right right i mean it is a release candidate things shouldn't break right Exactly. Or if they do, there'll be fringe cases and bugs and that kind of thing. There might be some obscure API changes, but if they were going to move away from the fundamental component model, they wouldn't have released that in Angular 1.5, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're not all going to have a view-view controller model architecture or something. They'll, have, uh, they'll stick with the same thing they've got now and just make sure that it works. 
Absolutely. I mean, they believe in it. And they're not going to move away from TypeScript. And uh, I, even if you don't want to move to TypeScript, because that's the other thing, is that people that don't feel comfortable or they've got a commitment to JavaScript at the moment or have just recently made a commitment to an ES6 transpiler like Babel, um, they, they can carry on. Um, I, I would say, I, I don't know. I think we're at that point of sitting around looking at the clock, deciding whether it's a go or no go. But within the next next month or so, we're definitely going to have that. I, I'm expecting to, in a month and a half's time, my answer to be a, a, a resounding yes, definitely start this thing now. Also, the other way to think about it is if you're really bullish on Angular 2 and everything we talked about appeals to you is to just sit and think, am I shipping my product you know, in before six months or is it going to take us a bit longer to really hit the market? And that might also influence, maybe you launch like, you know, shortly as um, the stable version gets released. That's very fair, yeah. But that's a big bet. I know the Rails, <laughs> the Rails uh, guys, like I've I've done it myself and advocated, they kind of like the release schedules used to be pretty good at one stage. And you just know, you know, the new stable version is going to come out in three months and we start a new project today and it, you just start with the beta and go. And that's what you build on top of. End of story. And it comes with pain, but come release date, you don't sit with the upgrade story, at least. So you prepay everything. Yeah, absolutely. You mean, unlike Microsoft release candidates, <laughs> I recently had the unpleasant experience of working from between release candidate one of .NET Core on OS X to release candidate two, and everything changed. Literally everything. But yeah, but yeah brave man, .NET Core on OS X between release candidates. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Glutton for punishment. Yep. But but anyway, I think um to to maybe look at it a different way. Ang the Angular 2 team, obviously there are a lot of people who have built a product or a series of products or lots of stuff, have a massive commitment in Angular 1 or now thinking now, is my stuff going to be end of life? You know, is this is this code now going to be legacy and dead? And I believe the 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 view is for the Angular team to have active support of Angular 1.x for about 18 months, um, and practically it's it's not going away anytime soon. So that practical support is that mostly like possible security stuff and browser compatibility as the web moves forward and bug fixes exactly. Yep. Yeah, I won't imagine any new features going in. Maybe they'll just keep on improving the compatibility story with Ember to to make it easier for people to upgrade. Well, absolutely, and I think I think that we might find that more and more features do get pushed in. I just think that they've they've hit an architectural ceiling behind what they can do compared to what they want to do. Is there anything else that we need to cover around the the Angular two and the around the technology um, part of it? Because I'm kind of curious to hear just the Angular scene locally. Uh, what it's like, what's the adoption? Um, I know you are speaking about it. You gave a talk at DevConf in March. Um, how was that received? Have you had a lot of conversations with people since then? Yes, I have. I potentially foolishly tried to do um, a half an hour comparison of Angular 1 versus Angular 2, and I ran hopelessly out of time. But it was very well received, and I've had lots of subsequent conversations. Um, I'm going to be speaking at JSNSA this year, next month, the 16th of July. So that'll be just on Angular 2. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, 
otherwise, I think that the, the local scene, there's a hell of a lot of interest. That ha there has been a lot of interest. There are more people using Angular 2 than any other JavaScript framework that I know of in South Africa. Um, so there's lots of local appeal. And, and then having said that, I mean, the, the question is always like, yo, the, what, are, what are people building in it, you know? Because the framework is only as good as the products that people build in it. Um, Angular 1, I know from a, a Google perspective, they've got a lot of internal stuff that's built in Angular 1, but nothing public external. And that's changing for Angular 2. They're building all their external stuff. They're dog-fooding Angular 2 in a very, very big way. Um, and then Angular Angular One locally, I I know of a lot of big sites that are being that are, are built using Angular One, that are in a South African context. Now, I must say that's one criticism I had. It's just personal um, that that Google never had public properties. I think it was only the is it the AdSense or the AdWords or somewhere in there, like one of those campaign managers. I think was like the only place you could see Google's own Angular code. Yeah, it's good to hear that it's changed. Google AdWords is a Google Web Toolkit, isn't it? Yeah, it's some obscure property. I can't remember. It's, it's so long in it. And it actually doesn't matter. The fact that they're now dogfooding it publicly, that's a good uh, good show. I think that also adds to why Angular 1 um, probably got cornered so quickly, is that it was just not built at the same scale as what anybody else did. But it, yeah. it doesn't matter. They, they're doing... Um, they're doing great work. I mean, you took us through a hell of a list. And it's, I mean, they've got catch up to play with the competition. And it seems like they're going to end up at the same level as everybody else is. They, they, they're reaching out. They're taking the best from other uh, communities. Like, it's fantastic. Um, Masa, I'm kind of excited to see where this goes. Me too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, is there any local meetups uh, that's dedicated to Angular that you know of? Um, I don't know of any local meetups, but I do know that the developer user group has a lot of Angular sessions, um, or, or it has from time to time. Um, yeah, and the, the, at the conferences there, I don't, I don't know of a de dedicated Angular user group, but I, I might stand to be corrected completely. There may well be. Yeah, if somebody knows of one, they can just let us know on, on Twitter, ping us on Zero Dev Chat, and we'll help promote it a bit, like we do with most meetups. That would be awesome. So I guess, like, I'm completely out of questions. You completely blew my mind with just this nice overview, concise, clear what's coming. Um, I guess before this conversation, I wouldn't have given Angular 2 another look. Now I'm just going to go prod around and, and see what's on off and what's coming down the pipeline. It's it's going to be really exciting to see this happen. Len, is there anything more from your side you want to cover? Oh, no. That's super comprehensive. Thanks, man. Cool. Thanks. And thanks for being awesome, guys. Thanks for doing a lot of good work for the community. It's a pleasure. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure. Right, should we uh, dive into some picks, guys? Sure yeah, thing. awesome. Eileen, do you want to start us off? Um, I've been very interested in this Netflix framework called Falco. Um, for the guys who are interested in, you know, sort of data interchange between single-page apps and a back-end, a very interesting unified way. Netflix's Falco is super interesting. It defines a whole pattern of how to interact from client-side state to server-side state through kind of single API uh, where the components can kind of publish their requirements. Those requirements are sort of gathered together on the client side. Backend can answer multiple queries all at the same time. Um, I'll drop the link in for the show notes. Thanks. Um, I'll go next weekly. And I think I've just got the one link I'll add for the, the JavaScript Jabber episode, the backstory on TypeScript. I remember it was a lot of fun 
uh, listening to that show. So I think anybody else who's curious about that can dive in there. And then, Mike, do you have any picks for us? I've got two. So the one is the the recap of um, Angular 2 from... I'll say this better in a second. I'm just asking if these are appropriate. Um, the one is the, the recap of the Angular 2 path by a gentleman, an Israeli gentleman called Shai Resnick. It's hilarious, and it gives you a good sense of where the Angular 2 team is and what's coming down the road. Plus one for um, that. That's very appropriate. Yeah. And the other one, that's something I use on a day-to-day -day basis, which is TurnJS, um, which is basically... Um, auto-completion and introspection and um, basically code navigation tooling or the engine behind it um, that plugs into various different uh, text editors. So to give you very much that that full IDE type um, find usages and that kind of thing, but all for JavaScript. And it plugs into Emacs, Vim, Sublime, Atom, everything. I use Turn with Space Max. It's fantastic. So are those two fine? Yep, they work great. The only thing is to remember to add the .turn port file to your git ignore everywhere because it just pops exactly. up in the most <laughs> random places wherever your editor spins up the daemon. But it's it's a really nice tool. Cool, yeah. So we'll add links to that in the show notes for everybody. Well, Mike, thanks a lot for joining us on this freezing Monday evening. It was ridiculous, um, the weather. It was a great conversation, though. I completely forgot about the cold. I guess we all have to brace it now again. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you at JSNSA and watching a talk in Angular 2. Now I'm like over-prepared more than the audience. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> thanks a lot. And I'll see you guys around, hey? Cool. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Cheers, cheers. Show notes for this episode can be found on zadevchat.io. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at zadevchat or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the ZA Dev Chat podcast, and we'll see you next time.